are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This episode is a product of our collaboration with Transformers Foundation. Transformers Foundation is the unified voice representing the denim industry and its ideas for positive change. It was founded to provide a thus far missing platform to the jeans and denim supply chain, and a central point of contact for consumers, brands, NGOs, and media who want to learn more about ethics and sustainable innovation in the denim industry. To find out more about Transformers, check out the links we've put in the show notes. This is part one of our conversation with Canon Michael, president and CEO of Bulls Farming Company. He's also a founder and a board member of Transformers Foundation. We were pretty excited to talk to Canon. It's the first time we've had the chance to have a cotton farmer on the show. We start off this episode with the origins of the Bulls Farming Company, as well as what it does now. Bulls Farming Company is located about two hours outside of San Francisco and has been in Canon's family for six generations. We then get into the details. For instance, what is extra long staple cotton, also known as Pima cotton? Why is it sold through merchants rather than a commodities exchange? How does California's regulatory environment impact his cost? What exactly drives the prices he's able to get for his cotton? And why has he decided to do the ginning himself? Ultimately, all of this leads us to traceability. Cannon explains why he sees traceability as the key to ensuring California cotton growers remain able to compete. If you're interested in learning more about Cannon's views on traceability, this episode just scratches the surface. Tune in to part two for a detailed discussion of why Cannon thinks existing cotton accreditation options fall short, how traceability could and should be done when it comes to cotton, the role of technology versus supply chain relationships for making meaningful traceability a reality. Why he sees traceability as the key to being able to tell his own story, and why he hopes that control over his story will lead to a fairer distribution of wealth across fashion supply chains. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast, or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation for our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. So, how did Bulls Farming get started? It's actually a pretty interesting story. So,、um, my third great grandfather on my mother's side was a man named. He was born Heinrich Kreiser in、uh, Brockenheim, Germany. Uh, and then, as a young man, became、uh, interested in traveling to America, and so kind of an interesting immigrant story.、Um, you know, he left Germany without much,、uh, without many funds or anything, but he he knew the butcher、uh, trade a little bit. He'd been an apprentice butcher,、um, and he made his way to New York and ended up、uh, crossing paths with a, an American、um, and a American friend was Henry Miller.、Uh, And they traded、uh, tickets, or name.、Uh, anyway, he had a ticket to get to the West Coast, where、uh, Heinrich felt like he had opportunity, and so、uh, 
was able to take the ticket of Henry Miller, uh, his friend and uh, newly made friend and, and sort of switched his name and for from then on became Henry Miller, but arrived in uh, in San Francisco in the 18 early 1850s um, when California was obviously still a pretty wild uh, place, but a place of a lot of opportunity with a gold rush and quite a bit of other things happening. And so uh, he uh, started getting involved with some of the butcher trade there because that was what he knew. Um, and then quickly made another German immigrant friend, a guy named Charles Lux. And um, my ancestor, Henry Miller, uh, was more interested in being on the farmland and kind of exploring. And, and Charles Lux was more of a city uh, person, but uh, he also knew the butcher trade. So um, in the 1850s, Henry Miller made his way into the Central Valley from San Francisco, which is uh, by car only a couple of hours. But by then, by back then on horseback, it was probably quite a journey, but saw kind of an open land of uh, kind of dry land uh, habitat, um, you know, in some wetland areas, but uh, largely um, unsettled and uh, saw that, uh, you know, could be an opportunity for raising some cattle. There were some uh, cattle that were, were being sort of grazed on the land, but uh, not very organized way. And anyway, they, they just kind of right place at right time, um, ended up uh, expanding as the demand for meat and people were coming into California and uh, amassed quite a bit of land and vertically integrated in uh really supplied a lot of the beef for, for, you know, the growing state and, uh, had quite a interesting, uh, journey until his death in about 1916. But, um, after he passed away, he, he was an interesting guy cause he was very, uh, type A personality he controlled a lot of things and didn't, uh, didn't like to let other people kind of, uh, work with him. And he didn't really support a lot of family members coming into the business before he died. So he didn't set it up very well for succession, which, uh, in family farms is a big issue. If you, if you don't have people to come take over when you're done, uh, you know, it's not a very healthy enterprise usually. And so that's kind of what happened was you had a family that <clears throat> got used to a pretty good, uh, amount of, uh, amount of wealth, to be honest, and, and had a good, uh, lifestyle. And when Henry Miller was gone and not leading the company, they were a little bit, a uh, little bit lost and had a lot of challenges with the depression and a number of other things that were happening in the, in the marketplace. Um, and so they ended up selling a lot of land that he had amassed and uh, ended up families became, you know, f fractional because people were fighting over kind of the remains of what was there. So in, in a lot of ways, an amazing story about my family, but then some kind of negative aspects of, uh, you know, cautionary tales that I take away from it, which is, you know, not planning for your family to keep farming, uh, you know, succession planning and those types of things. And you know, disharmony in the family related to money and those types of things. So some opportunities lost, but we're very fortunate to still be farming, uh, you know, where we are here, some of the original land that he uh, acquired in the uh, 1850s. So we've been on the land here over 160 years, which is uh, quite an accomplishment. You know, so that's a long time uh, to be anywhere, really. So um, did you like, did you always know since you were young then that you would continue this legacy of working on the farm? So, so it is interesting. Um, so because it was once a much larger enterprise, uh, and, and the family, it, it, a lot of people think of a farm as, as a family that, uh, you know, everybody's raised on the farm and everybody participates in the farm in, in our family, it, it was actually sort of a little bit different. Um, and even in, uh, Henry Miller's time, you know, it, his operation was so large, he had a lot of non-family members who were managing, and so what really happened was in the in the 1960s, uh, there was uh, 
there was this larger parent company, Miller and Lux. Um, and then, as I mentioned, there's some fighting in the family kind of between two sets of heirs, uh, the Nickel family and the Bowles family. There were some disagreements. And uh, so they actually ended up going to court to try to settle some of it. But um, so the land became divided again in the in the 1960s. And at that point, my grandfather and my great uncle formed uh, what is Bowles Farming Company. But they had, you know, been involved with other businesses and, and the farming wasn't their core business. Um, so again, the farm's about two hours, a little over two hours from San Francisco. Um, and they were living in San Francisco, but they knew that, you know, there was management on site for the farm, but it wasn't family management. So we didn't have a presence, you know, they had a place to stay when they came down here and those kind of things, but it wasn't the kind of continuous family living and being raised on the farm. So I was raised in San Francisco, but would come to the farm as a young boy with my grandfather and uh, just found it to be, you know, an incredible place because you could, you know, the, being in San Francisco, it's uh, and I was raised right in the city proper, um, but to be suddenly free to run and have endless, you know, fields and space. And for a young boy, it was a, a place of, of wonder, but it wasn't necessarily a place where I thought I was going to end, end up, but um I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm here. It's just been a kind of an interesting journey for us. So you started with cattle, but now you do a huge variety of things. Can you tell us a bit about that transition and what you do now? Sure. Yeah, California, um, you know, the cattle industry was was where Bulls Farming Company started, um, but over time uh we found the kind of highest value of the land wasn't really just to grow uh the beef and and there were other places that that could do it for uh, in a more inexpensive way. And, and, you know, the higher value was to grow, uh, vegetables and, and other, other crops, um, you know, fiber, like, uh, extra long staple cotton. And, um, you know, again, this California supports over 300 different, uh, crops just because we have this really unique Mediterranean climate, you know, one of the few, uh, Mediterranean climates in, in the world. I think there's like six total, um, areas that have this kind of similar, uh, uh, climatology that we have. Um, so really it was just kind of an evolution and, and, you know, California continues to evolve. There's been, uh, now a lot of the, uh, what they would call permanent crops, which are, um, you know, uh, almonds and pistachios and, uh, you know, wine grapes and those things that last a lot longer. Um, most of what we do are annual crops, uh, and we do, uh, both conventional and organic, uh, production on the farm. Um, uh, but we grow a lot of tomatoes. We grow, um, Extra, like I said, extra long staple cotton, garlic, tomatoes, uh, well, garlic, uh, let's see, sorry, garlic, carrots, onions, uh, lots of uh, watermelons, cantaloupes, honeydew melons. Uh, we do uh, a variety of herbs, which would be cilantro, uh, oregano, uh, uh, basil, and some others. Um, but we can grow wheat, we can grow kind of pretty much anything. Um, uh, on the farm, but it's, re it's really just an evolution of economics. Um, farmers kind of gravitate towards, uh, what they feel like they can, uh, grow for the most, uh, most return. And California is a very high, high pressure area to do business just because we have a very, uh, progressive, uh, progressive culture in California where we have high, uh, regard for, uh, the protection of workers, high regard for protection of, uh, the environment, and uh, so, you know, there's a lot of really, uh, you know, progressive uh, rules and regulations. So it's not just a, 
not just things that we talk about, we actually put them into regulation and into statute. Um, so none of those are bad things, but uh, they do become difficult when you're uh, competing against a, a world that doesn't maybe have those same things. Uh, things. Um, so I would never argue, you know, that we, uh, that we would want to not pay our workers fairly or that we, we would not want them to have, you know, health insurance or that, you know, we would not want to protect the air quality. We would not want to protect water quality. I would never say that those would be things we would want to do, but when, uh, when other places that produce the same things that you do, don't do any of those things, it makes it very difficult. So, um, you know, just even leading on, leading on climate change in California, you know, that's a big thing for our state is uh, to be really ahead of the curve and helping fighting uh, climate change, which means we have a lot of regulations about our vehicles and our fuel and lots of different things that raise costs, but uh, other places aren't doing the same thing. So anyway, you get the gist. Yeah. And I want to dig into this a little bit deeper um, in a minute, but before we do, maybe you can tell us what's extra long staple cotton and what is so unique about its growing requirements. Sure. I love to talk cotton. So um, <laughs> what one of the things you know that uh, that that I do uh, you know worry about is is uh, generalization uh, sometimes. So I think people do say cotton and they think you know all cotton is equal, um, which really is not is not true. Um, so uh, most of the cotton in the world is what they would call upland cotton, which is a specific set of uh, varieties that. Uh, there can be they can range in quality from very high to kind of not so so good, but it can be grown all over the all over the world and is grown all over the world. And, you know, millions of acres uh, of upland cotton are grown, um, but there's relatively few areas that can grow really high quality uh, cotton. And that's generally based on the climate of the of the area. Um, so California uh, is blessed to be able to grow this extra long staple cotton in, in our area uh, we would call it Pima uh, cotton. Uh, you know, there's it would compete directly with uh, Egyptian cotton, which has also long been known to be uh, some of the highest quality uh, out there. You you have some small subsets of things like Sea Island cotton and some others that um, also have uh, you know those uh, finer characteristics. But um, the real uh, value in a, in an extra long staple or a Pima is. Uh, really long fiber length and really excellent fiber strength. Um, so where an upland cotton is well suited for a coarser thread, uh, something that would maybe go into your jeans or, um, you know, a lower count uh, uh, sheet or something like that. Uh, Pima is so unique uh, because it can be spun into a very fine, long and strong uh, fiber that then uh, can go into textiles that have, uh, you know, very, uh, very uh, fine uh, textures and qualities. Uh, so, you know, your thousand thread count sheets, your, you know, finest uh, luxury shirts and, and those types of things. So it's a, it's a very unique, uh, unique uh, cotton and it's uh, really not produced. Uh, you know, there's very few acres of, of air, you know, very few areas that can produce that type of cotton. And so uh, California accounts for over 90% of, uh, of the American Pima um, and then there's the other areas of the world that uh, some areas can grow a little bit of it. But um, it's uh, yeah, pretty unique to California. Yeah. And I think that this is really interesting because it and we'll get into this in a minute as well. But the sort of. In effect, you don't you have more demand than what you can supply is what I understand. Um, 
And I think that's really interesting and because it contrasts so starkly to so many of the other people within the fashion supply chain that we talk to. And especially at the cut and sew level, you often hear about this oversupply of suppliers, that cut and sew factories are replaceable, that there's too many of them, and that that is what sort of like causes them to get such low prices and be treated as though they are replaceable. And what you're telling us is kind of kind of the opposite. And, and yet still might not lead to higher prices for you. But I'm going to park that and come back to it. I Because I want to just get a little bit more understanding of the parts of the process that Bulls Farming actually does and is responsible for and why you've chosen to do that. Can you share a bit about that? Sure, absolutely. So um, we do have a, a, a wide range of crops that we grow. And uh, I think it might be of interest to people to know that we some crops we do everything for um, and some we have partners that we work with uh, that do some of the work uh, as well. So um, with our tomatoes, uh, sometimes the uh, processing partners that we have will do the transplanting and sometimes they'll do the harvest as well. Uh, where our farm will be responsible for irrigation and some of the other uh, kind of uh, care during the season for the crop. We, we maybe don't do everything. And uh, actually, most of the crops, we don't do every single thing. But cotton is one of the ones that we take it all the way from the seeding and all the way to the harvest. And then we actually have uh, one step up the chain uh, in terms of vertical integration by being uh, part owner in a uh, cotton gin. And here, Kenan is referring to the process of removing the debris and the seeds from the cotton. So cotton to us is one of those crops. We've been growing it for a long time. Uh, we really like to have 100% control of, of every operation because we feel like our uh, methods are uh, very uh, unique of, in terms of how we grow and when we, we want to be able to plant exactly when we want to plant, you know, we wouldn't want to wait on anybody to, to kind of help with that. We want to take full control of that. And then all the things that we do during the season, the, you know, irrigations and cultivations and uh, kind of all the care uh, and protection of the crop that we do, uh, we feel like we just can do the best job of, of that. And then uh, harvest, you know, we want to make sure we get harvest very critical with extra long staple cotton that we don't uh, get rain on it. Um, upland cottons will tolerate uh, rain a lot more. And, and I say tolerate in terms of the fiber, uh, because when we're when we go to harvest, the the, the, the bowls, the uh, cotton fruit, as you would call it, are, are open and, and the fibers are sort of hanging out ready to be uh, harvested. And so rain at that time on an upland doesn't necessarily affect the uh, fiber, but on uh, Pima, it starts to yellow uh, after you get about a quarter of an inch of rain, it'll start to uh, get a yellow uh, tint to it, which uh, makes it uh, difficult for uh, you can actually render it almost useless to a uh, to a fabric. Um, so we have to be very careful that we don't get uh, to, you know, don't get rain. So harvest timing is really critical. So that's something we want to control ourselves also. And why do you do the ginning? Is it normal? I mean, is it usual for farmers to also do the ginning? There's, there's kind of different ways that the ginning works. Some, uh, there's kind of a co-op model where, where farmers are, are part of what they would term like a cooperative ginning arrangement where uh, it's sort of like being an owner in a way. Um, but uh, so I think most, for us, it's like actually owning the physical plant of the, of the gin. Uh, and uh, to us, that's uh, ability to also affect quality. Um, sometimes when you get a co-op, you have, uh, 
you know, a hundred members, maybe, or, you know, 60, 70 members. And so making decisions in a co-op can be, can be difficult. So, you know, whereas, uh, our view might be we wanted to install, you know, some machinery that was uh, maybe expensive, but we felt like it was going to be a good investment. If you're in a co-op and you've got big growers and small growers and you've got a lot of different opinion, you know, it might be hard to implement change. And so for us, it's really important that uh, we are in a ownership set situation with like-minded uh, farmers where we wanted and not, not as many farmers. And so where we can have an influence on decisions that are made. Uh, because uh, just like farming, ginning is, you know, a capital intensive, you know, you have a lot of machinery and you can make upgrades and changes and, um, you know, improvements. And so, again, to us, it was just to be part of something where we had a little more control and then also just to make sure we could produce the absolute highest, uh, highest quality uh, cotton and make the adjustments with any equipment if we needed to. It's interesting. So you're doing everything, every part of the process from planting to harvest and then also the ginning. So then step me, step us through what happens next. Who, to whom do you sell after that? So once, uh, so the cotton comes from the field and then it's turned into the, you know, 500 pound, uh, bales of, of lint, uh, that's ready to be spun. And, uh, those bales of lint at this point, most of them, we are all of them at this point, go to uh, a merchant or two. We have two merchants that we work with. Um, our, our gin doesn't have, uh, has storage for, for seed that's produced from, from ginning, but doesn't have uh, storage enough for uh, all the bales that we produce. So the bales need to go to a uh, warehouse um, and also, you know, a warehouse that has insurance in case there's fire, in case there's all those types of things. And then, you know, most growers just uh, have had this system in place with the merchants um, because uh, a grower doesn't necessarily have the connections to all the buyers. And then the grower also uh, just doesn't hasn't really taken part in the logistical steps to get, you know, since most uh, most California cotton um uh, extra long staple is is not spun in the U.S. It's spun overseas, and so there's uh, there's quite a bit of uh, you know knowledge of who the buyers need to be and how to get the you know containers to the right people. And so most most farmers aren't involved in in or you know just haven't been involved in that step. So uh, really, at the end of the ginning process, once it becomes a 500 pound bale, it really just goes to the merchants. So the role of the merchant is effectively to connect the grower to the the, the spinner, um, or maybe not necessarily the grower, depending on who's doing which steps, but to connect the cotton, let's say, that's ready to be spun to the person who's going to spin it. But I'm curious, why is extra long staple cotton sold to a merchant instead of on a commodities exchange, which, you know, could potentially lead to more stability in, in terms of price? Um, I think because it's smaller acres and it's sort of a, it's a smaller subset of buyers. So it's just, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a good point because, uh, one of the difficulties of being an extra long staple grower is that we don't have an exchange. So, you know, if there's, uh, you know, the other cotton growers can see, you know, look on the Chicago board and they can see a price and, you know, we, we, our market is a little less, uh, it's a little more opaque, uh, than, than that, you know, so it's, um, it's really a function of it just being a much smaller kind of a niche, uh, niche market, um, that kind of obscures, obscures that we're trying to pierce, pierce through it a little bit where, um, 
you know, because once the cotton leaves the gin, it sort of just becomes uh, a set of uh, quality characteristics. It, it, it's lost. It's uh, I mean, people still know it comes from California and, and you can you can actually get back to the which is the farm. But it's not been treated like that. It just becomes like a, a mill says we want this type of quality parameters and the merchant says, OK, we have this type of quality parameters, but it doesn't it's lost its identity back to the farm sort of when it goes to the merchant. So buyers aren't really saying, you know, we want bulls farming cotton because it's it's the best. They're they're saying, uh, you know, we just need these set of quality parameters. But now we're starting to see interest in a lot of brands trying to say, hey, we do want to know who the who the farmer is. And, and that is important, you know, the to start understanding you know, how did the fiber get produced and what are the practices that went in? And I think uh, the newer movement to me seems to get uh, away from this uh, merchant model. Not that they don't maybe serve a role, but uh, I think we can tell a really interesting uh, textile fiber story um, by piercing down a little bit. Yeah. And we're actually recording, uh, going to be doing an interview um, with somebody who's starting a direct to grower platform. So that, yeah, so we'll be getting into that. And and those episodes will be released probably end of April, early May. But I, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious too, like, does the fact that you trade, um, well, I want to, I want to get in a little bit more to the things that drive your price. You already started to allude to this when you were talking about the legislation in California and how that, you know, you have certain costs relative to your competitors, but I'm also wondering if, you know, um, uh the fact that you are selling through merchants does that make you more sensitive to market forces because i assume that it's a less stable price than you would have if you were um if it, you were going through a, a commodities um uh exchange right so but or maybe because there's no oversupply of pima cotton it's a it's a risk worth taking <laughs> Yeah, um, the price discussion is really interesting. It, you know, Cal- California extra long staple pretty much sells out entirely, so there's not really um, there's not really carryover. So in the rest of the in the rest of the world, there's quite a bit of carryover every year of upland cotton. But you know, our market sort of sells out every year. I think the biggest challenge um, that we've sort of uncovered is is the blending that goes on. Um, uh, there's there's a lot because Pima generally. Uh, extra, you know, our extra long staple sells at a, at a premium above upland. Um, mills have discovered that they can blend in upland with Pima, you know, so, I mean, it's kind of the worst analogy, I guess, but it's the only one I could think of, you know, a, a drug dealer gets a, a pure bag of, mm. of, of drugs, and then uh, he figures out a way to make that uh, go further. Um, it's kind of the same uh, at, a, at a mill, uh, when they do the lay down, um, you know, they can add in uh, other uh, uh, fibers. So we actually have gotten into, we, a few years ago or 2014, um, we got involved with a a project where, um, because extra long staple cotton is a separate, uh, genetic variety than upland. Uh, there's a company that, uh, you can actually, you can actually test fabric that's already made and see the composition of the DNA, uh, of the fiber that goes into the, into the fabric. And so, uh, we worked with a, a big uh, retailer here that was interested in, you know, they, they saw a hundred percent Pima hang tag on their sheets and they started questioning, well, how can we make that assertion? 
and they tested their own 100 uh, percent you know sheet and they also went out in the market and tested 30 other uh, samples of uh, competitors uh, uh, fabrics and uh, this DNA lab was able to tell that over 80 percent of what they tested was uh, either blended or was no Pima at all even though the hang tag said it was 100 percent so you know, from a grower standpoint, if, if you've only got, you know, a very small amount of acres that's producing, you know, a very finite amount of Pima bales, but yet that amount is being expanded because of, uh, of cheating, it's going to drive your price down. Um, so that's, I think there's some depression in the market uh, related to uh, kind of bad practices. And so, you know, our hope is to uh, kind of help eradicate some of that over time. And I think the way to do that is to have, you know, a clear, uh, clean handshake through the supply chain all the way to a, uh, to a brand because a brand doesn't want to be selling something, uh, you know, that's fake either. Um, so I, you know, there's just, it's just been a common practice and it's been hard to catch people. And, and, you know, there's just like cotton is such a large, uh, large, uh, business that it's just, it's really hard to, to track down the bad actors sometimes. And, uh, even even though they're blending, a lot of times they're not making a bad fiber. Uh, it's just not a pure uh, fiber. So I think of anything that's depressing the price, it's probably you know the blending and some of the che- the cheating that goes on. My hope is, and again, when we get on the traceability discussion, I, I do think that uh, as brands, because most of the brands who who are going to source extra long staple are generally. Uh, Generally, the higher end brands, I mean, they're, they're not, I mean, I don't know higher end is the right word, but they're generally the brands that are going to be selling Premium. a product of higher quality, yeah, higher quality. And so a lot of those are really starting to align with sense of, you know, sustainability. They really don't want, uh, you know, a story to come back where, you know, uh, you know, workers are being abused or there's bad, you know, environmental things happen. So I think there's much more opportunity uh, to tell a positive uh textile and fabric and fiber story. Um, and I think that's going to happen through traceability and connecting. And so I think the California growers of extra long staple have a unique product. Uh, we're operating, uh, in an area with uh, really high standards. And, uh, you know, I think, I think at that, I think we can give a lot of security to a consumer and to a brand if we work together. So I think we're just starting to see, um, some really great, uh, potential opportunities opening up and where we could take back a little, uh, control. Um, right now, I, I don't think we, we are currently not operating that way. So let's zoom out. Who are your competitors? And you've already alluded to this a little bit, but how do your cost drivers differ from your competition? Yeah. So I think we, you know, we would compete. There's some, uh, Peruvian, uh, Pima, there's, uh, Australian, uh, there's some Australian Upland that is very, high quality, um, that sort of might, you know, compete with like, just depends what, what, what fabrics being made. And then Egypt, I think is our most direct, uh, direct competitor just in the high quality arena, because there's just this cachet about, uh, Egyptian, even though there's been so many problems, you know, identified and so much, you know, the well-spun issue and the cheating that goes on, even, you know, how much Egyptian is Egyptian. And then, you know, just, uh, just what, you know, what, what the conditions are for, for the workers and, and things like that. So, I mean, uh, there's some Pima starting to be grown in West Texas. Um, but, uh, you know, for the majority it's California versus these other places. Uh, you know, so just, I, I mean, there's a litany of, of things that I could go through, um, 
about about how different the the costs are for us here. You know, we we pay a very high minimum wage. You know, it's been mandated to increase a, a dollar an hour over the last few years. So we're going to be just in comparison to Texas. Um, you know, we we are going to be paying a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, uh, where Texas's minimum wage is at seven dollars and twenty five cents. Um, and then also the biggest thing, one of the bigger things is that California does pay overtime to our, uh, agricultural workers where the rest of the, uh, the cotton belt has an exemption, uh, for, uh, not paying overtime. So if a worker works, you know, 15 hours, he doesn't get paid any overtime. If our workers work over eight hours, they get paid overtime. And then we just have other little things like, uh, you know, heat, uh, protection, you know, so if it gets over 80 degrees, which, you know, 80 degrees is warm, but it's not that hot. Um, but if we if it gets over 80 degrees here, you know, we provide extra shade, extra breaks, extra uh, water, all which are great. You know, then nothing I'm not complaining. Mm. You know, it's all it's all great safety. But if you look, if you do zoom yeah. out, like you're like you're saying, I mean, you know, a person in, uh, you know, uh, Peru or uh, Egypt, you know, the Egyptian worker isn't getting health care. They're not getting a minimum wage. They're not getting uh, a heat break. You know, there's just it is just that reality of, uh, you know, just a very different, there's just very different practices that happen. And, and our practices just happen to be written into law also. So if I am caught, you know, not giving my workers breaks or, uh, you know, not paying over, I mean, I'll go to jail or we'll, our farm will be closed down. So, you know, in these other countries, you know, you slip a guy a bribe or you do this or, you know, you, first of all, you don't yes. even have the, you don't even have, the, yeah. you don't even have the rules to begin with. So you don't even yeah. have to worry about it. It's interesting because what I hadn't really appreciated before talking to you was even the difference in terms of um, the difference in terms of legal context and therefore also the implication of that on cost, even within the United States. Yeah, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference that is um, I think most people just yeah don't 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 think about. But um, yeah, like I said, I mean, California is progressive in a lot of uh, a lot of great ways, but uh, it just it does make it it does it does make our business more costly, and and I think that's where you know the consumer needs to be engaged. You know, unfortunately, some of these certification uh, groups are trying to say you know sustainability and some of these things you know shouldn't cost the consumer anything, and I don't think it has to cost the consumer a lot, but I do think if you want people treated fairly and you want the environment protected, and you know those things are important to you, I mean that does cost a farmer some amount of extra money to make sure all those things happen, you know, but they're all good things. I mean, it's, you know, a consumer should feel good about paying, you know, a little bit more for a t-shirt if, if they felt like the, the worker was treated fairly and, you know, if he, you know, hurt his ankle that he got, you know, time off to keel and then came back and got his job back or, you know, that the, the farmer wasn't, you know, spilling, uh, you know, chemicals into waterways. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why people would want to feel, good about paying, you know, and I'm, it doesn't have to be like, like 10 times more. It just can be a little bit more. Right. And I think paying a little bit, the others, the flip side of this too, is about buying less. Right. Yeah. And I think we sort of forget how recently we bought as a sort of consume as a collective group of consumers, how it was not that long ago that we just bought a lot less. And um, so I think like, yes, per piece, it w I agree with you. It will be more expensive. It has to be more expensive, but you know, in terms of the net impact on, um, how much you spend on clothing or, you know, household textiles or whatever it may be, um, it doesn't have to be more if we are buying 
less of it. I think the key is going to be that you have to pair the sustainability and the good story with the traceability because the consumer has to feel strongly that the, that what they're doing is true. You know, you don't want to if so. That's where I think you know some of the some of the brands that are currently in the ahead of some of these uh, certification efforts are saying like, oh, well, the consumer won't pay. But I don't think, you know, we've given the consumer a choice about paying for organic and they are paying for that because they feel, even though I have a lot of examples of how organic isn't just because it has that certification, if it's coming from places without a strong history, you know, how, how good is that certification? But there's clear indications that consumers are willing to pay for that premium on organic. I don't think we've given them a sustainable, a credible, sustainable category, even if it's not organic. I just don't think that they've been able to say, look, if I if I, I feel 100 percent good about paying for that because I know that that's a credible that's a credible certification or credible. You know, so I think right now people are saying, oh, well, they won't pay for it. But to me, like we just haven't given them the real choice that they can trust. Uh, when we talk about sustainability, we often talk about the responsibility to environment and uh, we include uh, include design, production, purchasing, but we also, we should include also the action of consuming, you know, the last step. Jesse, that's such a great, that's such a great point. And it's one of the points I make around farming and and water use a lot, because, uh, you know, California does get some times where we get drought and, and other things. And people say, oh, these farmers are using so much water. They're using so much water. This is crazy. And, you know, I sit there, you know, you're, you're telling me you're using, but you're eating, you know, three times a day and you're, you're wearing, you're wearing clothes. Uh, you know, we're all part of, you know, it, you know, consumer behavior drives the, you know, economics drive change. And so if people say, Hey, look, I'm not putting up with bad behavior. You know, I, I want a better product, you know, and they're going to pay for it. You know, people that, that drives change to the whole supply chain. So people are, are we're all part of a, a, you know, a system together and, and people do need to have responsibility. And, you know, I think if the consumer can be better informed, but also be informed with like a really true and honest story that has integrity, I think they can feel much better about making those decisions. The brands also have a lot of responsibility because the brands are the touch point to the to the consumer. So, you know, they need to take uh, I, I think they're I don't know. I'm glad to hear the, a lot of talk about sustainability. But in, in a lot of ways, I feel like some of the programs are a little bit of green washing and, and a lot of brands just want to, they want to check a box and, and make it easy for themselves, which, which I understand. I mean, we all want life to be, to be pretty easy, but I think we've kind of shortcut the the consumer in a way because, you know, there, there is a lot of confusion about all the different labels and, you know, certifications and all this stuff. And, and there's not as much of that true story. The consumer's busy and the story has to be told, um, you know, with, with, a, with the brand telling, kind of leading, leading the way, but working closely with the, the farmers, I think. So I, I know we can get there, but it's just, it's, it's a slower process. It's interesting because what you're saying, I think really echoes something that we've heard from a lot of other suppliers that we've talked to who are positioned elsewhere in the supply chain, either cut and sew facilities or fabric mills. And I think what strikes me about what you're saying is that I, I feel I've heard the same exact thing being said at almost every level of the supply chain, which is that, you know, that just how difficult it that these are technical topics, that people within the brands don't necessarily have that technical expertise, and to therefore be able to communicate with them about it in a way that makes sense to them 
is very difficult. And then it sort of gets translated one more time, which is, uh, you know, when the brand then goes and tells it to the to the consumer. Ken, and I, I want to pick up on, on something you've been alluding to, which is the fact that you don't see existing cotton certification schemes as being something that really offers consumers the assurance that they need to maybe be convinced of paying a higher price. And we're going to get into that, as well as your views more generally on traceability, in part two of this conversation, which we've also released today. So be sure to continue on listening if you're enjoying this conversation so far. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.